Hi, I'm Leah Wheatholter, owner of Workman Forensics, and this is the Investigation Game Podcast. Welcome to the Investigation Game Podcast. Today I'm joined by Kara Vincent. Kara is an attorney and shareholder at Barber & Bartz in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Combined with her legal expertise, Kara is also a CPA, a certified in financial forensics, a chartered global management accountant, and a certified fraud examiner. Kara and I have known each other for many years, and some of the things I immediately appreciated about Kara was her care for clients, her ability to simplify and communicate complex concepts, and her creativity. So welcome to the podcast, Kara. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. So today we're going to focus on one part of your practice and the expertise that makes you the queen of estates and trusts, elder law matters, so primarily fraud against seniors. So before we jump into the nitty gritty, why did you make this part of your practice? Well, first of all, I like the fact that you said I was the queen of estates and trusts, and I would like to know where my tiara is because I have been waiting for it to come and it hasn't arrived yet. We'll have to uh, send you one. Yeah, <laughs> we may need to order that and get it in from Amazon. I'm sure they'll be able to, to do that quickly. Um, <laughs> I, I really came into the area of estates and trusts in a backdoor way. I started out in accounting and I liked the organization of it. I liked that I could tin key. I, that seems so nerdy and it really is, but I enjoyed being able to, to do a 10 key. I like the idea that the entries balanced, there was a debit, there was a credit. And so when I went to law school as a second career, when I started looking at where I wanted to focus my efforts, estates and trusts uh, really kind of fit into that. You were creating order and organization, you were marshalling information about all the assets and allocating them to their appropriate places. And even the trust, when you think about it conceptually, it's an outline you know, this happens and this happens and it can be very neat. But once I started practicing, the thing I really developed passion for was the people. The clients I work with are diverse. Some of them are are really interesting and some of them are a little, <laughs> yeah, let's just say diverse and complex. When you're doing estates and trusts, you're dealing oftentimes with the elderly. Some people don't think about doing an estate plan until they're in their 70s or 80s. And I had a client come in one time and meet with me and she was fascinating. She had such a history and a great background. She told stories about her life, about her late husband. And then she told me one day that she was not allowed to have um, wild turkey. And my first thought was, oh, you can't eat turkey, like no poultry. She was talking about the liquor, wild turkey. <laughs> and, and so, you know, it was just, it changes your perception of the elderly and the seniors. They have so much to offer and I find them fascinating. And so I really like to focus on helping them and, and getting them to where they need to be. And so that kind of segues, it, it's kind of a, a process. It started in accounting, moved to the estates and trusts, and then a lot of my clients are elderly. So this focus on protecting them is a natural extension of that. Yeah, I can definitely see where the accounting background, then the estates and trusts, and especially when there's issues, which is what we're going to kind of talk about today. To me, whenever our firm works on estate issues, it's really just about making lists and organization. I think that that just fits with accountants so well. We tend to be pretty straight laced. And yeah. um, I tend to think of myself as a little different from the typical accountant, but I still like the organization and just the streamlined process 
of putting it all together. So what is the most common issue in the area of estates and trusts that could be solved simply by just taking a few actions? So what I find a lot, so not only do the estate and trust drafting and design, we also administer it and we do quite a bit of estate and trust litigation. I see people fail to do is to tell the story. People want to know a story and there's always a story. They want to know what it is because you're generally working with the children or relatives of a deceased individual. If there is no story, they will make up their own. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And it's just the nature of who we are as humans. I think there's a, she sends some TED Talks and she's a researcher in, in Texas at I think the University of Houston, Brene Brown. And she talks about the psychology of people, which I find really fascinating. But she talks about, they will make up a story in their mind and that's how it plays out. And it's never positive. You know, if you don't tell me information, I don't ever create a story in my mind that everything's great and it's perfect my story is always what what's missing why don't i have the whole story what's what's not right so if my sister is administering my dad's estate and won't tell me anything and i don't have a story to work with i'll make up my own it's never good and the story i tell myself is that the sister has taken all the money and done something nefarious with my dad's stuff (laughs) that's a long-winded way to say that the the biggest issue is a lack of information and so that can be eliminated by implementing full disclosure when somebody's doing their estate plan and they're putting it all together they need to tell what's their children what's happening now that becomes more difficult if they're just inheriting a child and and sometimes they want to do it on the sly like i'm disinheriting johnny because he's got a drug problem but i'm not going to tell him until i die and then you're going to have to tell him. and that's never that is just a recipe for disaster so if everyone knows the story generally it helps eliminate issues either during the person's life or after they're deceased and so that happens all the time and the amount of misinformation and made up stories in somebody's mind and accusations can just if you've already got a dysfunctional family unit can create a recipe for disaster i always tell my clients if you're going to do something tell them now if johnny's got a drug problem you're cutting him out tell him have a family meeting and say i'm cutting you out of my estate maybe it'll be the defining moment for him and he'll change his his ways but at least then it puts everybody on notice what's going to happen and Johnny doesn't come back and say that you were unduly influenced or had incapacity issues right yeah gosh I'm thinking about several that we have going on right now and oh my goodness you're so right it would have made all the difference it does and I find that the family dynamic I always said well estates and trusts not family law but it really is And it's even worse than the typical family law where you're dealing with divorces and children, because at least in that arena, you've only got bad feelings that have been developing over the course of the adult relationship, which could be 10 years or Mm -hmm. three. But in the family law arena of estates and trusts, you've got bad vibes that have been created since they were five. You know, little Susie got the whatever. He stole my girlfriend. She stole my boyfriend. Mom loved you best. All of that stuff it sits there and simmers under the surface. And usually it it comes out when that last parental unit passes away. And so the dysfunction, whatever level that is, you know, they say every family has a level of dysfunction, but whatever that is, it really bubbles to the surface. And so if you can pave a way to information so that everybody knows what's going on, they may not like it, but chances are high, they're not going to go against dad or mom and her decision. And if everybody knows, then nobody can make up a story about what's going on. Right. And then, you know, not to 
take away from the revenue of a law firm at all, but at least <laughs> I think we can the... generally bank on the fact that there will always be dysfunction and people That's will right. always have secrets and they will always want to not tell Johnny about him being cut out. So it doesn't matter how many times I say it, people right. are still going to do it. So I'm, it, I don't it, think I'm working myself out of a job there. No, no. But if people took your advice, then the money that is within the estate could be distributed to the heirs instead of fees, either to you or to me. But man, everybody just wants their pound of flesh. (laughs) Right. It's the same thing with elder abuse. So, you know, because that's kind of what we're focusing on, but with that financial dynamic, Mm -hmm. if everybody knows what's going on, the propensity for theft or embezzlement or fraud or abuse or whatever is going to be at least mitigated, if not eliminated. Yeah. And that makes sense because in businesses, we talk about having segregation of duties and internal controls and like, and basically it boils down to accountability. And so this is just that version, like a family version of accountability. Okay. So our audience consists of law enforcement and other CFEs, accountants, students, and educators. My next question is just What are a few of the things, maybe top three, that we should know about estates, trusts, wills, or probate? What are some basic top three things we should know? When you ask me that question, the first thing that comes to my mind is what I tell clients when they come in and we start talking about planning for their estate. It's all about mitigating risks. So you tell me what you're most afraid of and we'll figure out a way to mitigate or eliminate the risk. But that doesn't mean we solve every issue. When I was young, I I had somebody tell me, you know, when you're talking to clients about accounting work or tax work, you tell them, you know, you can have it two or three ways, fast, cheap, and correct. You pick the two you want. You know, if it's cheap and correct, it's not going to be fast. If it's fast and cheap, it's not going to be correct. And I think that kind of translates into the area of estates and trusts, except in that realm, the three are simple design with easy administration. The next one is no estate tax. And the third is protecting children from themselves. If you protect the children from themselves and you have no estate tax, so you've crafted it so you don't have an inheritance tax on a federal level, you're not going to have an easy, a simple design with an easy administration. Yeah. And, and so you start talking about the coupling of those things. So you really have to focus in on what the goal of the client is and what they're most afraid will happen once they're gone. Because Mm -hmm. at some point they're gone and they have to let go of it. There are a few states that don't have the rule against perpetuities, but we're not one of them. Oklahoma is not. So at some point this trust has to end. You know, tell me what that is and we plan for it. So I think people mistakenly think that estate planning solves all the issues. And that's not really the case. The second one would be probate's not the worst thing in the world. There are some estate planning attorneys that talk about how horrible probate is. And there are some, I don't know if you call them disadvantages. It's public records so people can find out information about your estate and who your children are and those kinds of things. And it takes a little bit. There are statutory timelines and and processes you have to go through. The fastest one I've done where we had no hangups, no issues. It was about four and a half to five months, you know, but it's not the end of the world. There are worse things that have happened and the vast majority of probates end with that issue. And so some people are scared of probate and that's, I do my best to just tell them, you know, these are your options. And one option is just have a will and let it go through probate. And so um, counseling clients on that, it's, it's not the worst thing in the world. Even if you don't care about probate, <laughs> Thinking about implementing documents that anticipate a scenario when you don't immediately die. When I meet with clients, generally their first thought is I'm either alive or I'm dead. (laughs) 
And they, so they're crafting their estate plan, like I'm dead, what do I do with my assets? And they fail to anticipate a scenario in which they are incapacitated, right. but very much alive and very healthy. There are a lot of people running around who have dementia or Alzheimer's and they're physically fine. <laughs> and they will maybe live out, outlive some of their family members. So there are additional documents that we anticipate in an estate planning arena that most people don't think about. So financial powers of attorney, healthcare powers of attorney, those are things to consider. So there are two, when you're thinking about estates and trusts, it's not just about what happens to myself when I die. It's about what happens to me and how do people help take care of me if I become incapacitated? And when I pose that scenario to clients, all of a sudden a light goes off and they're like, oh my gosh, yeah, somebody's got to take care of this stuff. And, and then they get on board, but it's not their first thought. Yeah, that's great. I had not thought of that either, but you're right. And I'm thinking of some of the cases we're working right now. And some of the issues happened before the second parent died. Uh-huh. And there wasn't a plan for who was going to take care of her. And so like shady stuff happened during that time. A lot of things can happen too, because they don't have a power of attorney in place. Right. But yet they've put a child as a signer on account, just one child as a signer on the account. And a lot of times it's the oldest child. And it's usually the one that's most responsible and gotten their act together. But sometimes that most responsible child also has a control issue. (laughs) And so, They want to control everything, control the money, control the parent, control everything. And so, you know, we both know about the triangle of fraud. You know, you've given opportunity and and then you've got this rationale that happens. And so when you've got a child that's really controlling and has their stuff together, sometimes they start developing a God complex of, well, if it weren't for me, all of this would go down the tube. So I should, you all don't need to question what I'm doing, just trust it. And so without having a power of attorney in place and, and just allowing people to be signers on accounts or, or just do things or write checks out of your checkbook and you sign it and they don't really have authority, but you're not paying any attention, you know, that's what happens a lot of times with elderly people. There is no power of attorney in place. There is no guardianship. And so there are no controls. Yeah, actually, that sets us up perfectly for the next question. In your practice, where do you most commonly see fraud against seniors? Unfortunately, a lot of times it's the children in the family. But sometimes it's the typical, you know, neighbor, friend, and I'm using air quotes. You can't see me, but I'm using air quotes. (laughs) Friend, you know, comes in and is helping and just comes on the scene. You do sometimes see them taking cash directly from the senior, like writing a check to themselves out of the senior's bank account and then getting the senior to sign it. Sometimes just cash is being taken from them. I've never understood why somebody thinks they can write a check out of an elderly person's account and nobody's ever going to ask, but it happens. And so sometimes they're not very good about hiding the evidence because I don't think anybody's ever going to ask. Sometimes the theft doesn't actually happen during the senior's life. It's after they're gone. So the wrongdoer will convince the senior to sign a new beneficiary designation form. So I have one right now where somebody who was a financial advisor got themselves put as the primary beneficiary on an annuity policy that they had actually sold to the senior. Oh no. Um, Had the senior going into the bank and putting them on their bank account as a pay on death beneficiary. They're not actually taking the cash right now. They're setting it up so that they will get a windfall when this person dies. 
Right. And nobody's paying attention to that. You know, I think about instances where people around me have passed away and your first thought is, okay, what did they have? Did they have an insurance policy? And so you're going through this elderly person's stuff and you realize that 20 years ago, they had an insurance policy for $10,000. Well, do they still have it? Right. <laughs> you know, did it expire? Was it a term policy? You know, so you, you start this thing, but if you don't know that the policy exists, you can't do anything about it. Exactly. And so a lot of it's in secrecy. And so we see things happening on the front end that really don't kick in until after the seniors deceased. But once those documents are in place and the secret's there and nobody knows, there's no incentive for this person to help take care of the elderly person. In fact, sometimes they will neglect them intentionally to speed up the death. So So horrible. I know it is horrible. It is horrible and evil. And I think about my own parents who are, I think my mother would be offended if I called her elderly, but I I do think they're approaching that age. If I thought about somebody doing those kinds of things to my parent, it just fills me with, I mean, there would be a significant amount of rage on my part. So you can understand the dynamic of family members who find out that this has happened and they are just at a loss and they're so angry. And so it happens. We see children who move in with their parents to care for the parent, but really all that's happening is the child is taking advantage of the parent. Yeah. Johnny's going to take care of mom, again, using air quotes, but all Johnny does is drive her car around, hang out in the back bedroom, smoke weed, and gets all his food paid for. It's not as evident because it's not that he's physically taking cash out of her bank account. It's that he's sponging off of her. And if she's not incapacitated, how do you know she doesn't just like the company? And she's willing to pay for it. So there are some, there are a lot of variables at play. And sometimes it's not as black and white as did they take cash. But some of the things that we hear about a lot are home repair scams of elderly people. Oh, sure. Uh, Somebody comes in to fix the roof, does a really crappy job or asks for most of the payment up front and the elderly person pays it. And then they're gone. The home repair person's just disappeared. You know, they may not even have been using their real name and there's not really an avenue unless you can trace the check. You know, you can go through all those things. But again, how much money is at stake and how much effort does the elderly person want to put into finding that? Which brings up another issue. When you have an elderly person and there's a fraud or financial abuse issue, there are are times when the elderly person will argue with you. Mm -hmm. I had a client who had two sisters and their father was elderly and had given probably a half a million dollars to a man who was going to invest it for him. And he just kept stringing him along and getting more and more money from him and nothing was happening. And he had been not diagnosed as incapacitated. He didn't have dementia issues. He just had not made a wise decision. And he fought them on them trying to help him to stop paying this guy more money. And it was a battle. It was a battle. And I think the only thing I can think is that there's a fear associated with it. When you become, we all know that it's at some point we are not going to be able to either manage ourselves or we're going to die. You know, that's just, that's the reality of life. Mm -hmm. And I think some elderly people are scared that if the family finds out that they've made a mistake or that they've been duped, that immediately their ability to make their own decisions and their autonomy is going to be eliminated. 
mm-hmm. and they're going to wind up in a nursing home. So then they will, they'll argue about it and then tell you to mind your own business and then they'll hide information from you. <laughs> so you find yourself trying to help the parent or the elderly person and not only are you fighting the wrongdoer, your, your efforts are actually being actively thwarted by the elderly person. So for family members, it can be super frustrating because you're not able to make any headway. And so there are a lot of added components to elder abuse and fraud on the elderly that you don't think about when you're first thinking about it. So it can, it can be difficult, but there are a lot of of scams that are implemented a lot of times you know they'll people write checks out of the account and write it with the person's have the have the elderly person sign their name to it and then they'll act as if this person is starting to lose their memory you know (laughs) so that becomes very frustrating because you don't you don't know i'm sorry i i'm droning on i could talk all day about this kind of stuff oh no no this is great this is awesome we'll be right back to this interview I'm here with Rachel Organist, who is the lead data analyst at Workman Forensics. She's been instrumental in building the data analysis tools for the Find Money and Divorce program. My first question for you today is, what is Find Money and Divorce? Find Money and Divorce is basically our way of taking the analytical process that we've developed here at Workman through working many divorce cases and converting that process to a format that anyone can use to work through their own divorce. Okay, so how does that work? Essentially what the program is, is a series of webinars, reference materials, and spreadsheets that will help you do the same calculations we do when we're helping our clients sort out their assets. The content is organized into five different modules, but you can mix and match if you only want to use certain parts. So for example, you might just need help getting your documents organized, but you aren't sure you're ready to dive into your financial data, we have a module for that. Or if you'd like to use our data analysis templates, but you think you can follow the included instructions and you don't need the extra step-by-step assistance of a webinar, then that's an option too. Okay, so basically for a user, they don't pay one fee and they have to use everything. They can kind of pick and choose what they need. Exactly. Hmm. So my last question is what can users expect to get from this program? Working through the process will help users feel confident that they've identified marital assets like bank accounts or real estate that they may be entitled to in their divorce. Basically, you're making sure that you aren't out of the loop on potential marital assets or being taken advantage of due to lack of awareness if maybe you haven't been as involved in your marital finances as you'd like. The process will also help you identify what you know and what you don't know so you can discuss any remaining questions with your attorney. And taking the time to be prepared in that way can really help you make the most efficient use of your attorney's time and that can save you on legal costs. Yeah, it definitely sounds a lot cheaper and a lot more useful for a lot of people. Yeah, you'll also have a much better picture of your finances, which a lot of people find really helpful. Of course. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today, Rachel. My pleasure. Welcome back to the podcast. Being a forensic accountant yourself, when you have a case of fraud, elder abuse, or maybe a child, trustee, caretaker, stealing money from the estate while they're alive, afterwards, whatever. When do you decide whether or not you're going to need a forensic accountant's help? So anytime I'm the lawyer on the case, I may think there might be an issue or I may see an issue and I know it's there, but if I'm the lawyer, I'm not going to be able to be the witness. I'll tell you, I I had a, the only family law case I ever did, which said to me, there are some things you should never do. And this is one area of law you should never practice in. And, and I had a, a spouse who was 
artificially deflating the value of the business and artificially deflating income. And I did all this tracing, but the problem is if, if you're the attorney asking them questions on the sand, you can't also be the witness. And it was early in my career and I thought that was the dumbest thing I've ever done. You've got to have a third party who can, even if you know what's happened, you've got to have a third party verifying that, who independent of that can say, yeah, yeah, this is wrong. So if I'm the lawyer and there's an issue with that, I, I pull in a forensic accountant. If there are significant transactions, you know, this is all you focus on. Mm-hmm. So you have tools that are at your disposal that I don't have the time or the interest in investing in. <laughs> yeah. So there's an efficiency in the analysis that's gained by using somebody who that's all they do. And there are times I serve as an expert witness and the attorneys will call it a forensic matter, but it's not really forensic. There's an amount of money and we know what it is. The question really that I'm testifying about is how things would typically work and what we would expect to see from an accounting standpoint. So it's not so much the analysis of the numbers and trying to find the amount that was taken. I would never try and take on a complex forensic analysis because that's just, um, I couldn't be as efficient as somebody who does it all the time. So definitely outsource in those instances. Yeah, and I feel like in these cases too, because they are family related, having a third party that is not emotional about the topic is helpful. So instead of like having your client testify about different issues that happen, I mean, they still may have to testify, but they're going to have their own stories like you talked about at the beginning about why this happened. And well, I mean, if they did this, then they also did this. And so having that third party, I think would be helpful and just no, these are the facts. This is what actually happened. This is what you would expect and not have all of the years and years of family baggage testifying with it. It is family baggage. And especially in estate and trust matters, when you're in that court, it's a court of equity. And because it is a family court, I mean, that's what you've got is a lot of times family members arguing. That all tends to be, and and I'm not saying the judges don't pay attention to it, but at some point it becomes white noise. He said, blah, blah, blah. Well, she said, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, the judge is like, tell me the facts. So having a a forensic analysis done, having that third party there who can cut through all of that emotional and back and forth is very helpful for the judge because then they can pinpoint on something that's actually fact-based and not emotion-based. Yeah, that makes sense. So what are some of the ways that seniors can be helped either through civil or criminal prosecution? Oklahoma has several statutes that deal with elder abuse. So we've got the way the statutes are organized, they're done by title, and each title deals with a different issue. So Title 43A governs mental health, and so there is, I think it's Section 10-101, you get the um, Protective Services for the Elderly and Incapacitated Adults Act. So that's a mouthful. I don't know that there's a good acronym for that, but it prescribes the requirements uh, and things that need to happen for reporting elder abuse. And so I would liken it to the kind of process that you have when you're dealing with children who have been abused. Mm-hmm. So who needs to report? What do they need to provide? When is a report required? You know, it gives definitions of abuse and caretaker, although I don't like that word. When I think of a caretaker, I think of somebody who manages a graveyard. Oh. I, 
I like caregiver because <laughs> they're not taking care from you. They're giving care to you, but you know, exploitation, financial neglect. So it defines terms and it gives you a process to follow if there is abuse. We've got Title 63, which governs public health and safety, and that establishes in Section 1-1900.1. I know your listeners will all race out to look these up. Nursing uh, Home Care Act. <laughs> And it talks about the liability of nursing homes to, re- to their residents. Title 30, which is what we use for the guardianship, that contains the guardianship statutes. It allows for an establishment of Oklahoma court-appointed advocates for vulnerable adults. So this would be very similar to the concept of a CASA, court-appointed special advocates for children, where the court appoints them and their objective is to do is to make a report to the court. They talk to people and they make a recommendation that's in the best interest of the person, as opposed to an attorney who is doing what the person tells them to do. So I have clients all the time. I mean, we all know people who are doing things that are not in their best interest, but if somebody hires me and they're telling me, here's what I want you to do, as long as it's not illegal or immoral, sometimes that doesn't even come into play. But my job is to do what they're telling me to do. But somebody who's working as an advocate through the court system is making recommendations that are in the best interest. And so that changes the dynamic a bit. So we have we have all of those things that work together. They give protocols, that kind of stuff. But we're using just the civil statutes, court process. Sometimes it's through the guardianship court if the elderly person is incapacitated. So we're using all the standard civil and criminal statutes for fraud, for embezzlement, those kinds of things. But then overlaid on top of that are these statutes that govern how we're supposed to deal with elder abuse. On the federal level, there was an Elder Justice Act that was created in 2010, but it hasn't been funded. I think last year, last thing I saw was in sometime in the last part of last year that said there was less than 10% of the funding that was needed had been authorized. So everybody thinks that once an act is created, that's great. You know, there's this act, but the legislature either federally or on the state level has to fund it. There have to be monies allocated to actually bring it to life and do something with it. And so less than 10% of the funding needed has been allocated for that federal act. And one of the things that that funding would do would be to create forensic centers for the elderly so that, that they could get help if they thought they had had money stolen from them. But that's just sitting there and nothing's really happening with it. So we're really just dealing with the typical civil and criminal statutes that govern fraud and embezzlement. But the state statutes on how we deal with elder abuse and reporting requirements kind of get overlaid on on top of all of that. I wanted to also just kind of mention here for maybe people who haven't dealt with this, that at least at Tulsa Police Department, I think it was in conjunction with Health and Human Services. They actually had money to work criminal cases, you know, local criminal cases dealing with senior fraud. And so then because of that funding, they could, I know they used to contract out some of that work. I don't know with funding changes and stuff, but they used to contract out some of that work. And then also they had a detective that was specifically assigned those types of cases. And then on the federal side, the Department of Justice, at least until the coronavirus stuff. But one of their top priorities was fraud against seniors. And in my experience with this, while it's a top priority, they're still prosecuting them as like wire fraud or bank fraud and things like that. But anyway, just a couple little 
fun facts about how that works, but I didn't know about that recent act. That would be really helpful, but yeah, it's got to have money behind it. You know, the sad part is that this whole idea of elder abuse is just becoming more and more prevalent Mm -hmm. as opposed to being reduced. And so I don't know that there will ever be enough funding to actually on any level, state or federal, to be able to effectively deal with the issues that are created by this because there are so many nuanced facts and circumstances that you really have to, you can't just look at a number and go, okay, well, there was fraud. I mean, of course, you and I both know that. It's the aggregate of all the acts together. Mm -hmm. And this is that same thing, but even sometimes combined with the analysis of the money, is also the analysis of the family dynamic. And so it's difficult to pinpoint. And I think, you know, we we don't have enough resources to take care of our children. And there's even less concern about the elderly. So I hope that these programs are fully funded at some point. But until then, I think what you find with the community of estate and trust attorneys is that they're donating their time on a pro bono basis. So there's an attorney here in Tulsa, Jim Milton, and I are working on one where we believe that this, she's now deceased, but her friend, (laughs) using air quotes again, kind of embedded himself into her life and then using his power of attorney, transferred her house to him before she died. And of course, these are all accusations, but I haven't seen anything that tells me they're not accurate and then used the power of attorney to go to the bank and and even after she was deceased went to the bank and pulled money out only when the bank found out she was deceased did they stop giving him cash so we're dealing with that issue i have an elderly client who i'm working with for estate planning right now who i think i mentioned earlier the financial advisor got himself put on beneficiary designation forms now whether that was because my client really wanted him to be his beneficiary or not still remains to be seen but it's at least a little suspect and they had an altercation so when i met my client for the first time his whole right arm was bruised from his mid-arm all the way up to his bicep. And I mean, it's significant bruising. So there are just a lot of, of elements to it. I wish there were funding so that we could have these financial forensic centers for the elderly. And so I hope that that becomes a reality. One thought I've had is that at the beginning, when you were talking about things that families should consider, it's like, oh, you need to remember to do a power of attorney. And you know, that the families forget to do that. But then it seems like some of these quote unquote caregivers or quote-unquote friends who are supposed to be taking care of them and they remember to have a power of attorney made don't they gosh yeah they don't forget that yeah so whether it was their idea or whether it was a already in existence when they came along they use it to their benefit they use that i've got one right now where they're still using a power of attorney for somebody who's under a guardianship and and they were supposed to have relinquished that power and they just, as of, you know, last month, used it. And some of it is, again, there's so many things about the area of estates and trust that people don't understand. So when you look at somebody who's used a power of attorney inappropriately, or they're, they're using one that sh- they shouldn't be able to because the person who granted the power is deceased, 
you have to look at the intent too. Were they intending? They didn't know. I had a client come in one time and we were trying to distribute, instead of forcing a probate because the life insurance policy or annuity policy was paying out to the estate, instead of forcing a probate to dump it into a trust, we asked them to just make the payment directly to the trust to allow our client to avoid a probate. And so I'm discussing the strategy with him and he said, well, I'll just use the POA. And I said, well, you can't use the POA. She's deceased. And his response was, well, the bank doesn't know she's dead. You know, I'm thinking, oh, no. yeah, so sometimes it's, but he didn't have any nefarious intent. He was just trying to efficiently get something done and bypass a bunch of hoops. And so you really have to look at the context of the situation to see what was going on and what, what intent was at play. But yeah, for the number of people who don't think about doing a power of attorney, there are an equal number of people who are using them incorrectly or nefariously. <laughs> right. Oh my goodness. Okay, so my last question is, what is a reasonable goal or outcome to expect as we're investigating these types of cases? Like, is there a way to recover losses or? There can be. So I think it's very similar to what you do in that you're looking at the assets that have been stolen, cash has been taken. And so is it still around or has it already been spent? You know, if you've got... (laughs) you've got somebody who is stealing from an elderly person, chances are high. They don't have a lot of money sitting around, a lot of assets that you can recover from. And that money is usually gone. I think the goals are really in steps. And the first one is stop the abuse, whether it be financial, physical, or both. And then start looking at quantifying the amount. That's, that's reasonable. It doesn't always happen that we can recover that. And so when I'm working with a client, it's to make sure I set expectation with them. We start small and we start working through taking steps to do the analysis because they don't know oftentimes at the beginning what's happened. Like I said at the beginning, if they don't have the story, they've created their own. So there's an analysis that happens when they come into my office and I'm sitting there talking to them and I'm thinking this could be a conspiracy or they could be crazy, (laughs) or there could just be a story that they don't know about. And so you have to do that analysis. And sometimes you have to take some steps and start small to try and get some answers. And a lot of times that starting small is just starting to ask questions. And by the response you get from the person you think who's doing something wrong, by that response, you can kind of gather whether you need to ask additional questions. If they are like, oh, yes, come over. Let me share this information with you. That's one thing. And that would usually end it. But what we see oftentimes is this person bows up, gets all defensive. Again, if they're the oldest child or they have control things or they feel like they're in a position, they don't want to be questioned. Mm -hmm. And they're offended that you would even question what they're doing. But when they do that, then, you know, you don't have an option but to ask more questions. So we kind of walk through that. We talk about what the client's goal is. You know, what's your goal? Is it just to end the abuse? Is it to find out the story? Is it to get justice and to get all that money back? And when they say, yeah, I want all that money back and I want damages and attorney's fees, the next question is, where is that going to come from? Right. You know, you've just told me the only car this person has is your grandma's <laughs> and, and they have a gambling problem. Chances are high there's not a stash of cash sitting around somewhere. Now, the caveat to that is if you're dealing with somebody who's also an heir to the estate, our greatest success in recovery in that context is surcharging their share of the estate. 
-hmm. So if you've got a $400,000 estate and they've stolen $50,000 worth of money, their share gets cut by $50,000 and everybody else gets to share in that. Now, that's not helpful while the elderly person is still alive, but there are mechanisms to make that happen so that they don't get to benefit. You know, they're not unjustly enriched by that behavior. And, and then you also have the option of filing a civil suit. You know, if, the, if there are damage that can be charged again, then you get a judgment and then you can take that out of their share of the estate. So there are some mechanisms. But when you talk about reasonable goal, I think the first reasonable goal is find out the answer to what's going on and protect the elderly person. And, and I would say that most of the time, that's the goal. That's the goal is to protect the elderly person. And I, I have a lot of times I have the client saying, we don't care about the money. We will take care of them. We just want this person to stop abusing them yep. in whatever way they're doing. And so, but communication is really the key for that, I think, because if you're communicating often, you know, I talked about that story. The same thing happens with the attorneys. If you don't tell your client what's happening, they create their own story. And so we, you know, I talked about, I'll talk really quickly about the differences between guardianship and trust actions. So sometimes if you're in a guardianship court, you may not be able to get information about the trust that this person is a beneficiary of because there's a, there's a court for that. And so sometimes there's an interplay. We have a contested guardianship going on right now. The other side saying, you don't have a right to see that trust information in this court. And we're saying if, if she is the sole beneficiary, the grantor and the ward doesn't have the ability to see it, who can? And they're saying, you need to start a trust action for that. And so we're having this battle, but in, embedded in her trust bank account are her social security benefits and pension benefits. And those are not trust assets. Those belong to her personally. Mm-hmm. So you have this interplay of assets. And when somebody becomes incapacitated, it's very difficult sometimes to separate them all out because the things I can do as an individual, when I have all my faculties, I can do whatever I want to with my assets. But once I become incapacitated or I die, there's a different set of standards. The family may go, hey, we don't want to deal with dad. So Johnny, you can live in that house. You do whatever you need to do to take care of dad because we don't, we don't want to have to deal with that. He's cantankerous and he's difficult. So you go, you live in the house, you get your groceries paid for. But once dad dies, that analysis ends. And so there's a different standard, a different behavior that has to occur. And so we see sometimes children who continue to try to act like dad's still alive. So they keep buying groceries with his checking account, living in his house and not compensating anybody for those costs. So there's just a big family dynamic at play. And so when you talk about reasonable goals, all of that fits in and it's on a client by client basis, I think. And that's not yeah. really a great answer, but it's the best one I've got. <laughs> no, actually your answer, I hadn't thought about this case in a while, but we had a case that involved like a trust action and a guardianship. And I had no idea what all those things were until this moment right now. So thank you. You oh, okay. you know, I mean, it didn't impact what I was doing at all. But uh-huh. I just always wondered, like, why is this so complicated? But you just, now I know. So thank yeah. you, Kara. It can, it can get really complicated. And so when you're seeking justice in a courtroom, it can delay justice. And it can become very frustrating. And so I feel for clients who are walking through that because there are so many variables that we don't control. 
So I always tell people on the front end, be aware of what's happening with your elderly family members, especially your parents. Be in their business, check on them off them, make sure they're not isolating, make sure that they're being taken care of and be aware of who's in their life and who that support system is because things could be happening. And, and that's when elderly people are best protected is when they have a good support system and group around them. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Kara, this has just been wonderful. This has been super educational. Our process of how we work on these types of cases aren't really that different from working in embezzlement or like a divorce case, but the story around it just usually seems so confusing, but you really have clarified a lot of things for me. And I mean, hopefully my team listens to every podcast, but they're definitely going to listen to this one because on estates, it's like, wait, but we were just supposed to trace the money. And then there's just, there's just so many other components. And for me, it's always been about like, knowing where our forensic accounting engagement begins and ends and really get that clarified with the attorney we're working with because there are so many things in this area that we just don't know because this isn't that part is not our specialty and so having a good working relationship with the attorney well before we wrap up will you let our listeners know where they can connect with you well obviously they can get to me through the barbara and bart's website barbarabarts.com i'm on linkedin they can contact me through email kvincent at barbarabarts.com b-a-r-b-e-r-b-a-r-t-z and then they can call me 918-599-7755. I'm happy to answer questions. I, I do that a lot. People call in, they'll have a general question and I answer it. And then I never, ever talk to them again because I help them or they, they get enough that they know how to deal with it. But yeah, I can be reached on online and, and through email and phone. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Kara. And you. hope you have a great rest of your day. You too. Thanks so much. Thanks. The Investigation Game podcast is a production of Workman Forensics. For more information about the topics we discuss on each episode, please visit workmanforensics.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. You can also connect with us on any of the social media platforms by searching Workman Forensics. If you have any questions, comments, or topic ideas for the podcast, please email us at podcast at workmanforensics.com.